You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLeggi. Endoscopy has revolutionized gastroenterology, but the procedure presents many challenges in its application, meaning what is an endoscopy at one place may be not an endoscopy or a similar endoscopy at a separate center. Joining us to discuss quality outcomes for endoscopy is Dr. Peter Cotton, Professor of Medicine at the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Welcome, Dr. Cotton. Hi. Peter, I'm going to get right to the meat of this. We hear about risks with endoscopy, meaning that there can be some, we'll say, bad outcomes. What specific risks are we talking about? Well, there's some general risks of having any sort of a procedure related to sedation and anesthesia, but the more dramatic ones are things like perforation. That's the most feared complication of colonoscopy, which is the most popular, most common GI endoscopy procedure that's performed and been performed in even greater numbers over the last few years as the screening initiatives have taken place in the United States and around the world. And if you're feeling well and being persuaded by your wife to have a colonoscopy because you had your 50th birthday and you end up with a perforated colon, that's really very bad news. The risk of that in good hands is probably in the region of 1 in 2 or 5,000, but it's a devastating experience when it occurs. If it's recognized quickly, then, of course, it can usually be managed pretty quickly, but it still involves an operation. If it's not recognized quickly, then it can have really devastating consequences. And there are other complications like bleeding, which can occur when any therapeutic procedure is done. Peter, like any other procedural area, there's great controversy about what sorts of training an endoscopist may require to do a procedure. My question is, are there types of training that minimize the risk and maximize the benefits? Is there a way we should be doing this to ensure good quality outcomes? We certainly should, and the standard training for gastroenterologists, as you well know, Mark, is three years of GI after internal medicine training, which includes very substantial training in at least the standard endoscopic procedures, upper procedures, colonoscopy, and in some cases in the more advanced procedures like endoscopic ultrasound and ERCP. And the people coming out of those fellowship programs are pretty competent in the routine procedures and the therapeutic aspects of them, like managing bleeding, taking out polyps, and that type of thing. But we're talking there in terms of several hundred procedures that they've done under supervision before they are allowed to fly free, as it were. Surgeons also, many of them are trained in endoscopy, but by and large don't get that same sort of volume. And there are very few training programs that actually provide that sort of experience for internists and family practitioners. The issue really is training is only a means to an end. What we're trying to end up with is people who are competent. And the struggle has been to define and recognize competence so that over the years, the main professional societies in the United States, like ASG, ACG, AGA, SAGES, have been struggling to define 
what they mean by high-quality procedures and perhaps more important, what things can be measured to prove that people are reaching those levels of quality. What's been missing has been any real measurement of that quality. There's no certification of endoscopists in the United States as there is in some other countries. Uh, there's no exam you can take and uh, put out a diploma on your wall that says somebody's looked at me and my training and my experience and my data and has given me a star. And that's been a big issue because, as I said, training may come through, legitimately come through a number of different routes, but what we want to end up with is some sort of mechanism that shows people are actually achieving what they think they can achieve. Peter, on the economic front... There's been a tremendous push amongst endoscopists to do more procedures, meaning what I'll call throughput in the endoscopy suite, and that includes colonoscopy. And some of the questions I have regarding that is I've read some data regarding taking your time, especially on withdrawal, looking for adenomatous polyps or polyps in general, and that the thoroughness of the examination actually can be correlated with people who spend longer withdrawing. You know that there's some practices where the hope is to get you in, do the colonoscopy, turn over the patient, and move on to the next. Do you believe this data? Is that an important concept? Without question, it's been validated several times. The first seminal paper was produced, by, in fact, by a practice group and was presented to our national meeting, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which very clearly correlated the withdrawal time, the length of time that the endoscopist was looking, what they were finding. And these are all people with a huge amount of experience who are doing colonoscopy, not, maybe not every day, but certainly many times a week. And they showed that the people who took the longest on withdrawal compared with the people who took the shortest found twice as many lesions, and not just tiny little ditzels of polyps, they found twice as many what we call advanced adenomas, which are large adenomas or ones with significant dysplasia or even cancer. These are really rather shocking data, actually, and, and along with other data from other centers looking at the quality of colonoscopy show that it is not just a quick look-see, and if you get there and back, it's done, and the patient is safe for five or ten years. It has to be done very carefully. And indeed, the more you look and the more adjunctive techniques you look, the more you find. There's a lot of physicians and a lot of practices will say, I'll pick on cardiovascular surgery, where a lot of their outcomes data is published. With regards to, we'll say, an endoscopist perforation rate or his or her withdrawal times, do you see these becoming publishable items? I certainly hope so. I've been advocating it for close on 10 years. At the moment, there is no obligation on anybody to produce any data of any sort. There may be the occasional forward-thinking hospital that's credentialing people who's actually asking for data, but I'm not aware of them. The only things that have been done in the United States this is have been purely on a voluntary basis, and some high-quality gastroenterology practices have it as part of their contract that they have to collect data and they help to collect data and they are able to look at their performance in various ways, incidence of sedation, for instance, or, or perforation rates or bleeding, if you want, and compare them with their own colleagues. What we don't have is the data from the bad people, as it were, because they don't collect and publish their data for obvious reasons. 
I've been pushing very hard for voluntary report cards for endoscopists over the years, and most people thought that was ridiculous for a few years, but now it's actually official policy from the ASG and the ACG at least, and they've spent a lot of time with impressive committees pulling together the sorts of metrics that are required, withdrawal time being one of them and adverse outcome events being another. This, of course, has had some stimulus from the Medicare efforts and the pay-for-performance suggestions that we should be paid a little bit more according to our outcomes. As far as I'm aware, there are only two larger initiatives going on at the present time to collect and compare data. One is a colonoscopy exercise that's voluntary that start by Irving Pike up in Virginia, uh, where he's got maybe 40 or 50 colonoscopists around the country entering data onto a website so that the individual endoscopists can look at their performance every few months or whatever and compare it with everybody else who's providing data without knowing who those other people are. So that's called benchmarking. And that's got maybe 15,000 colonoscopies in it at the moment. It's giving very powerful data on what people who are proud of what they do are actually achieving. The other project is one of my own that I've been running for the last year on ERCP, which, as you know, is a more complex and dangerous procedure. It's also done less often, and therefore it's kind of easier to keep track of it. We've got 50-odd ERCP doctors collecting data and putting them into the central data bank that's supported by the Olympus Corporation, and we have something like 7,000 cases in there right now so that I can look at my metrics, for instance, how often I fail to get into the bile duct or the pancreatic duct or how often I fail to remove a stone that I'm trying to take out and compare my performance with everybody else in the system, again, anonymously as far as they're concerned. And the ASG and the ACG have bought into that concept and are formally discussing a joint national system to do exactly that. Of course, all of this should be made easier and will eventually be made easier by the electronic reporting systems that most endoscopists use, where we don't anymore dictate reports. We put them into computer databases that generate a report. Now, it should be possible to extract automatically those quality data from those data sets and whoosh them up on the Internet automatically to be crunched and sent back down again for benchmarking. The problem there is providing the central data storage and analysis system, which is going to be pretty expensive. Again, that's going to start off being voluntary, but there'll become a tipping point where most people are doing it and everyone else will begin to feel that they ought to be doing it, not least if the payers suddenly catch on and realize that there are some people who can provide data and there are others who cannot. I personally think this will have a very substantial practice advantage down the road. Peter, you know, when I go to the grocery store, I pick up some apples and I make sure that I've got good apples because I certainly don't want to bite into one that doesn't taste very good. With regards to physicians, though, often we don't have the same luxury of being able to get our fingers on data to know who does what, how they do it, what's their complication rate. And you mentioned the professional society, so I'll go on to ask you, societies like the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, American College of Gastroenterology, the AGA, SAGES, what are they doing with their members to encourage them to collect data or to generate report cards? 
Well, not enough in my view. They've concentrated, as I said, in actually exploring quite carefully what things are measurable, what are meaningful and measurable, what can be measured without too much trouble, and what makes a little bit of sense. And there's been a lot of argument, and there are all sorts of other national societies like the American Quality Association, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who are interested in the AMA as well, are very interested in being involved. And uh, in fact, many of them want to lead this exercise. But in terms of actually encouraging people to do it, apart from saying it might be a good idea to do it, it hasn't happened. It won't happen until there is a relatively painless infrastructure such as I was describing. And when people will begin to realize that they're missing out if they can't produce the data, when a payer asks for it or when a patient asks for it or, or a lawyer asks for it, for that matter, I encourage my patients to ask their potential practitioners for some data. And uh, as I get older, I'm much more interested in that sort of thing myself. I want to know who's going to be good enough to work on me. Of course, we as doctors have certain advantages on that, although they're not absolute. And in fact, when I needed my first colonoscopy, the people I went to to ask who of my colleagues was any good were the nursing staff who were very clear as to who I should choose and who I should not choose. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Peter Cotton, Professor of Medicine at the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Cotton, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. My pleasure. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.